At the start of my career in advertising in Chicago some 30 years ago, I learned about the importance of repetition, of hearing and seeing a message over and over to getting people to act. Using something called learning theory, which sounded pretty scientific but was purely made up, <laughs> it's advertising, we convinced our clients and ourselves that a person needed to see an ad a minimum of two to three times in a short period to get that person to ask for or buy a product. Now this may not sound like a lot, but you can thank, the folks, you can thank folks like me for filling your Saturday morning cartoons with I'm cuckoo for Cocoa Pops or follow your nose or two all beef patty special sauce. Let Learning theory led us to believe that repetition was key to getting a kid to ask for sugary cereals or getting you hungry for a Big Mac. Now we're in the fourth week of Jesus' Bread of Life discourses in the Gospel of John, and at this point you may be wondering why we keep repeating parts of the same chapter in the Gospel. In other words, why all this talk of bread? Jesus mentions bread one way or another at least six times in this single chapter of John. And it follows a progression. You recall a few weeks ago, it was the actual bread that Jesus uh, multiplied to feed the crowd. And then later, we, saw, we heard of the bread of heaven and Moses' manna that came down from heaven. And then his claim, Jesus' claim of being the bread of life that comes down from heaven. And today, when Jesus, we find Jesus switching from bread to something much more visceral, to the very flesh and blood. A close reading of this scripture may sound more like a scene from Walking Dead or Game of Thrones, with Jesus telling the crowd that those who eat my flesh and drink my blood will have eternal life. As repugnant as that sounds to us today, it would have been even more challenging to the listeners, to the Jews of his time, with their strict dietary codes, especially concerning what foods to eat, and an absolute censure on consuming any kind of blood. So this leaves us, I think, with two questions. Why does Jesus feel called to make this, his bread of life claim so many times? And why today the sudden upping of the stakes to move from talking about bread to talking about his own flesh and blood. I think Jesus and the writer of John uses so much repetition of the bread of life claim to underscore its central importance. Like the pseudo-scientific learning theory of my advertising career, John repeats this claim to make sure his community remembers it and understands its importance. That belief that believing in Jesus as the true bread of life, an idea at the very center of the Gospel of John, that that belief is key to salvation, is key to eternal life. And today, in Jesus' call to eat his very flesh and blood, we understand that this belief is maybe not as easy as it seems. Belief is an all-in proposition. There's no halfway. In fact, next week, we're going to see that it causes most of his followers to abandon him. That belief is too difficult. The difficult teaching about belief would have resonated with the embattled community of John as, it had, as this belief had caused them to be kicked out of their synagogues, separated from members of their family, and cut off from, very, from their very economic resources. 
This difficult teaching about belief speaks to us today, I think, as we navigate challenges in our personal lives and in the lives of our community. So what is going on here, really, in Jesus' call to eat his flesh and blood and drink his blood? Why use such a challenging metaphor at this point in the gospel? Jesus' ministry up to this point has been more pastoral, more focused on signs, for example, like the turning of water into wine at the wedding at Cana, or the call to the Samaritan woman to drink of the water of life that will never let her thirst. In this week's reading, it all takes a darker turn. Jesus is now pointing, I think, towards his death. His blood suggests the Eucharist that we will share in a few minutes. Jesus is our Passover lamb, and we consume him by faith in thanksgiving. Buried in this reading is the thick reality of the incarnation, of God becoming man. That Jesus lives because of the Father, because of God, and when we eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, he becomes a, very much a part of us, gets in our veins, literally. The beautiful paradox of Christianity is that the all-powerful God of creation, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Elijah and the prophets, that this God chose to become one of us, to condescend to our level, to be a poor first-century Jewish woodworker, so that this God could bring us into a more intimate relationship with him. As you may have noticed, we've been doing a very abbreviated version of our Eucharist, our communion, these past months, and we'll continue doing so until God and the bishop willing, my ordination happens in October. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait to speak and hear the wonderful language of our Eucharistic prayers again up here. On the night before he died for us, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had given thanks to you, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. Even hearing it again makes me miss it all the more. In our shortened Eucharist that we're doing, I wonder if it's easy to forget that we're at what we're actually performing when we come and kneel at the rail and take the bread and drink the wine. That we risk forgetting, or maybe haven't thought about in a while, the powerful act that we are performing. That we are feeding by faith in the very body and blood of Christ. Now, scholars have argued literally for literally centuries over what's happening in the Eucharist. That whether the bread and wine are mysteriously changed into flesh and blood during the Eucharistic prayer, or that the bread and wine coexist with the body and blood or some other variation. And in our tradition, we don't get too hung up on the mechanics and subscribe to what's called the doctrine of real presence. That somehow the bread and wine are the real presence of Christ. That in the sacrament of the Eucharist, the outward and visible sign is that of bread and wine, while the inward and spiritual grace is that of the body and blood of Christ. Now, we could spend hours discussing the deeper meaning of this, and I know a few members of the congregation who could do it more justice than I can up here. Ann Drake, Donna Bowman, a number of others. And if you're interested in hearing more, I invite you to come to our inquirers classes that are going to start in September because we're going to spend more time unpacking it. But just think about the power of this simple act. That when we take of the communion, a little bit of eternity is breaking in. That when we eat of the bread and drink of the wine, we are at our most alive, our most realized 
Because we're consuming not just of our reality, our reality of grain and water and grapes, but of Christ's reality, a reality of the kingdom of God. We are in fact consuming a piece of eternity, our eternity. Percy Bysshe Shelley was an early 19th century romantic poet who wrote a short sonnet that, as far as I know, may still be a staple of high school English literature classes to this day. It's titled Ozymandias, and it's about the hubris, the arrogance that we mortals can sometimes fall into. In the poem, a traveler comes across the remains of a once great statue in the desert. Amid all the broken stones and disfigured columns, he looks upon a pedestal that reads, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. The sharp disparity between the plaque and the destroyed remains, the forgotten Ozymandias, speaks to our tendency to place too much importance on the illusions, on the empires of the present moment. And while I don't propose there are any budding emperors in our midst, I do wonder if we tend to place a little too much importance on the apparent empires of our world. Empires of power, empires of wealth, even empires of injustice and inequality. And mistakenly think that they are eternal, that they are forever. That we forget that these two are just illusions of permanence and that true eternity is elsewhere. True eternity is what we take in the communion. In one of my two visits to the local Department of Motor Vehicles this last this week, which tells you a little something about the kind of week I had, uh, I was getting my dry Arkansas driver's license, and the nice lady behind the counter asked my height and weight, and without asking, put gray in for the color of my hair. <laughs> I didn't say anything, but I have to admit it stung a little bit, that I had somehow convinced myself that 60 is the new 40, and that I still had the dark brown curls of my youth. I'd created my own illusion, my own empire, in this case about youth. In a way, I'd let my hubris, like Ozymandias, get in my way. So I invite us today, when we come forward for the communion, and stretch out our hands for the bread and take the cup of wine, I invite us to consider that we are being given a foretaste, a sample of what true permanence, true eternity looks like. That when we eat of Christ's body and blood, we are tasting what it's like to be fully and completely alive, to live in our reality and in Christ's reality. That as we chew and swallow, we are bringing Christ into us, and in so doing, Christ is bringing us more fully into him. And in this act of incredible intimacy, we are reminded that the illusions of empire, of permanence, that are out there are just illusions and are destined to be scattered across the desert, like the statue. We'll do this, and then we come back again next week to be reminded again. Amen.